Well, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, I'll be reading verses 1 and 2, and with the word of God open before us, let's ask for his help in our time studying it together. Heavenly Father, this word is breathed out by you, expired by you, and every word within it is profitable to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, and to train us in righteousness that each person who hears it might be equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things about your Son contained in this word. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. This is the word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the name John Newton. John Newton, of course, being that famous 18th century slave ship captain who was saved by the grace of God and spent the remainder of his earthly life ministering around England and writing hymns. Uh, Newton is probably best remembered for his hymn writing, such wonderful hymns that I'm sure you all know and appreciate here. Amazing Grace being one of John Newton's most famous hymns. My personal favorite hymn in all of the hymnal, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion City of Our God. I ask the Lord that I might grow. If you're not familiar with that one, I commend it to you. Newton's also known for his relationship with the great English poet William Cooper. Now, you might be thinking of the great English poet William Cowper, because that's how it's spelled, but it's not pronounced Cowper, it's pronounced Cooper. William Cooper, who wrote the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Cooper's also known for writing a 5,000-line hymn concerning God's grace and mercy. Uh, Maybe Newton's relationship with the uh, British abolitionist William Wilberforce is top on your list of memorable John Newton contributions to Christian history. But I would suggest that what John Newton should be remembered for far and above any of these other things is his great letter-writing ministry. Newton penned thousands of letters to fellow ministers, to lay people, to women's Christian societies around England that he would meet with at various times. And he was faithful to do this, penning thousands of letters over the course of his life. He once said that at the end of the day, when all of his energy had been spent, he would pour out the remainder of his soul through the tip of his pen. And Newton would write these brilliant, speaking in language that I don't even think in. Uh, Newton once wrote a letter to a friend named William Bull, 
a fellow minister in a neighboring town. And speaking of friendship, now just think about these words for a moment. I don't even think of my dearest friends in terms like this. <clears throat> Newton says, if two needles are touched by the same magnet, they will maintain mutual sympathy for some time. But if two hearts are joined together by the heavenly magnet, their fellowship will exist throughout time and into eternity. And then he says, I love you, my dear brother, and could not love you more if I saw you or heard from you daily. What a wonderful, pastorally toned uh, comment that is about friendship. Well, one letter that Newton wrote was to a young Miss Medhurst, a young woman from Yorkshire who was part of a Christian society of women that would meet to grow in their spiritual life. And he says this concerning our text today. And I want this to serve as the framework for our uh, examination of Hebrews 12 to just the first three words. Newton says this to her. The best advice I can send is that you may have an abiding and experimental sense. And by experimental, he means experiential. You may know from your own experience the reality of these things. That you may have an abiding and experimental sense of those words of the apostle, which are just now upon my mind, looking unto Jesus. Now listen to what he says about these terms, these three words. The duty, the privilege, the safety, and the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one little sentence. Let me read that again. Looking unto Jesus, the duty the safety, the privilege, and the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one little sentence. And I want this to serve as the structure of our time in Hebrews 12. We're going to examine what it means that looking unto Jesus is the duty, privilege, safety, and happiness of the believer. And the question that I want each of you to be asking this morning is this, do I have an abiding and experimental sense of this reality? Do I know these things as true in my own life? In other words, you might ask yourself this way, do I treasure Christ as my greatest happiness? Do I know that all of my safety in this life and the next are wrapped up in him? Do I consider the very ability to look unto Jesus as the highest privilege of my existence? And have I made it my life's duty to do so? These are penetrating questions. Many of us consider these things true in their doctrinal sense. We know that it's a great privilege to look to Jesus. We believe that our security in this life and the next are found in him. We know that we should find great joy and happiness in looking unto Jesus. No Christian here would argue that it's their highest joy and greatest happiness to look at Christ. But when sin besets your soul, what do you actually do? When trials come your way and that diagnosis is made or when grief overtakes your heart, what do you actually do? Look to Jesus for your security? Continue looking at Jesus for your joy and happiness? Look to Jesus as your duty and responsibility? And remember the privilege of looking to Jesus? The answer to all these things, every trial, every difficulty, every besetting sin is found in these three little words. 
looking unto Jesus. So let's take a look at these four aspects together. It's the duty of the Christian to look unto Jesus. What does it mean that looking unto Jesus is the singular responsibility of the Christian's life? Well, of course, we know that these three words are not found in isolation in the book of Hebrews, are they? Uh, no three words are found in isolation in Scripture. And yet the Puritans had this fantastic way, Puritans and post-Puritans like Newton, had this brilliant way of taking a very small clause and writing whole books on it. And so we're going to guard ourselves against being too isolationist here. And so I want to deal with a bit of the context that leads the author of Hebrews to say this phrase here, looking unto Jesus. What's happening in the background? I'm sure you're familiar with chapter 11 of Hebrews, that great hall of Christian faith. As one author put it, it's the Westminster Abbey of Christian faith. Of course, the, the cemetery at Westminster Abbey containing so many headstones of famous faithful Christians. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, we're given no less than 18 examples of great faith in the midst of persecution, loss, want, and danger. We can think of Abraham having no home to lay hold of his, of his own or to claim as his own. Or Isaac and Jacob in their various uh, difficult situations. Joseph being sold into slavery and sent away to Egypt and accused of sexual sin. All of these things that happened in his life and yet his faith propelled him forward uh, in the will of God. And so on the heels of uh, chapter 12 are all of these examples of faith. What does it mean to walk by faith with the promises yet unseen? And here in chapter 12, the author gives us what might be described as the climax of Christian faithfulness, the pinnacle of Christian faithful living, who is in fact Jesus. Jesus himself, it tells us, who is the author, the founder and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross and despised the shame of it. So he himself endured great trial and persecution and difficulty in this life. And by his joy which was set before him and his faithful obedience to the will of God, he serves as the exemplar for us of what it means to walk by faith. Jesus endured far more than simply the worldly persecutions of those who didn't like him. Uh, Jesus was not merely uh, incensed by the politics of his day. It's far more accurate to say that the greatest persecution that Jesus suffered was not at the hands of the Romans or at the hands of Pontius Pilate or at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders who despised him for his teaching, but at the hand of God. At the wrath of God. Again, John Newton in his great hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, says that the, the stroke, uh, excuse me, it's not Newton's hymn, it's, um, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. The stroke that pierced him was the one that justice gave. What caused Jesus the most pain and the most danger and the most persecution was the wrath of God directed at you and me poured out upon him on the cross. And so the example of faith is not just the example of faith against a world that rails against the Christian gospel and the Christian church. It's the example of faith that's willing to take up its cross daily and die to self and sin after the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of this to say, our Christian duty is reflective of this passage in context that is like the heroes of faith listed in chapter 11. And like Christ our Savior mentioned in chapter 12, we are to lay aside every distracting weight. We are to lay aside all our besetting sins and run the race set before us with endurance. Now, I've heard people talk about this phrase before, running the race, 
And they treat Jesus kind of like the finish line. Look, he's crossed the finish line. All these saints in chapter 11, they've crossed the finish line. And so this great cloud of witnesses stands along the sidelines of the race course, cheering us on to the end. And we see Jesus at the end, and he is the author and founder of our faith. And we look to him, and we reach after him, and we pursue him in this worldly life. That's what it means that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And in part, that's true. But bear in mind that Jesus is not just the first finisher of our race. He's the author and the perfecter of our own faith in the race. Jesus is not just standing at the finish line holding the participant's medal to hang over your neck. He's your running shoes. He's the water in your water bottle. He's the clothing that you're wearing. He's the breeze that cools you when the sun's beating down on you. He's the blood pumping through your heart and the energy in your veins that enabled you to run it all. He is not just standing there at the end, cheering you into heaven. Come on, you're almost there, my friend. He's carrying you by his spirit. It's the duty of the Christian to run the race with endurance, and we do that by the power of the spirit and looking unto Jesus as the supreme example of walking by faith. The Christian race is laborious, and it requires us to deny ourselves. It requires us to take up the cross. It requires that we don't look to things below as the culmination of our existence or the supreme expression of God's blessing. I'm able to run with endurance because my bank account is full and my physical health is good and my spouse and I don't argue. So now I'm able to run with endurance because God has blessed me here below with all of these things. Instead, we look ahead and upward towards Christ. My friends, if you're looking and waiting for a re-Christianization of our nation to make your life better, you're grasping after the wind. Because even if it happened, it wouldn't do what you think it would do. If you're looking to your spouse to fulfill you by answering all your needs and affirming all of your wants and comforting you in all of your maladies, that's not going to fulfill you. Because like you, they're fallen and sinful. And as much as they disappoint you, and I, I say this generally to help us out here, as much as your spouse disappoints you, you disappoint your spouse even more. And so now you're going to have to figure out which one's which. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, one of the most brilliant statements that Paul makes in all of his writings, he says in Ephesians chapter 4, Therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with which you've been called, bearing with one another. And you think to yourself, oh, goodness, that's so true. I have to bear with so many people. Wait, who's he writing to? He's writing to everybody. That means I'm everybody else's one another. So y'all have to bear with me as much as I have to bear with you. And the, the Bible doesn't give us an opportunity to look at each other down our noses or point our fingers at those people who let us down because we're the ones who let other people down. If you're looking to your spouse to fulfill you, to your earthly spouse, you're asking them to be what only Jesus can be. If you're looking to your politicians and your nation to fulfill uh, safety and security for you, you're asking it to be what only Christ can be. It means that we look to Jesus as our good and sovereign Lord, even when life threatens us all around. And in all this, we need to guard that we don't grow proud of our looking unto Jesus. It's simply our duty, isn't it? It's simply our duty. In Luke chapter 17, verse 10, 
Jesus tells the disciples, so when you do all that you were commanded to do, you should simply say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's it. He doesn't give us a hard task in this life, does he? He asks us to look to him as the example and as the source of our faith. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says, The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And we fear the Lord by looking unto Jesus. And we keep his commandments by looking unto Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to his apostles? If you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. Now, for those of you who are married, and I hope that this rings true for you. It certainly does for me. So if I'm the only one, I'll take the brownie points I get for saying this out loud in front of you. The longer I'm married to my wife, the more dear and sweet she is to me. The longer, the more often I look at her across the table or across the room or sitting next to me in the car or wherever it may be, the more and more I love her. You understand that experience, many of you, don't you? The more you look at that person to whom you've committed your highest affections in this world, the sweeter they become to you. The more you look to Jesus, the more you love Jesus, the more you obey Jesus. It's a brilliant paradigm that he's created for his people. Look to Christ, love Christ more, and obey Christ. It's our highest duty. But brothers and sisters, looking to Jesus while our duty is not the only thing that this text encourages us to remember. It's also our highest privilege. It's our highest privilege. I believe this may be the least appreciated of the four points, that it's the Christian's privilege to look to Jesus. Many of us affirm that it's our duty. Yes, yes, we look to Jesus. That's what we're told to do. We obey his commandments. That's what we're told to do. But it's our greatest privilege to look to Jesus. And why is this? Well, not least of which because we have no business whatsoever looking unto Jesus in our natural state, do we? We are so totally and radically depraved in our natural state that our eyes cannot even be raised up above our eyebrows to cast a glance his way at fear of being consumed by his blazing glory. Christ tells us that no one can come to him unless the father who sent him drags that person to Christ. So the reality is, it's not only that we cannot look unto Jesus, but we will not look unto Jesus unless he draws us to himself. What a great privilege to be rescued out of the muck and mire of sinful humanity and brought into fellowship with the one true living God. Jesus draws us to himself. The incarnation shows us what sinful man will do if they can get their hands on God. They'll kill him. That's what sinful man does when we get our hands on God. We crucified him. No one looks to Jesus in faith unless we are first regenerated. It's our privilege, therefore, to look unto Jesus because it's so undeserved and because it's such a gift of God's grace and because Jesus himself is so lovely. Think about how the Bible describes Jesus. He's the fairest of 10,000, the bright and morning star. His face, it tells us in Revelation, shines like the sun in its fullness. His eyes are like a flaming fire. His hair is white like wool. His feet like burnished bronze. And even his clothing is whiter than any launderer on earth could whiten it. He's the risen Lord, the ruler of all nations and kings, the author of history and the redeemer of his people. The one to whom we must look alone for salvation. What a great privilege that God has invited you into his presence. 
How did our worship service start this morning? There's a brief announcement. The deacons give an update. There's a prelude while we prepare our hearts. And then we are called into the presence of Christ by God's word for worship. Do you realize that the structure of our liturgy is meant to remind us to orient our hearts towards the great privilege it is to be welcomed into God's presence? How does the psalmist tell us to come into God's presence in Psalm 100? With thanksgiving and with praise. Because we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We didn't make ourselves. He formed us into his flock. There's a place deep within Vatican City which has what I'm realizing now is one of the most ridiculous names of a location perhaps I've ever heard, the Vatican Apostolic Archives. It was formerly the Vatican Secret Archives, but that sounded too secretive. It contains some 53 miles of shelving, containing over 3.5 million volumes of written works alongside of countless other artifacts. It takes a special invitation or permission to enter these archives. Special invitation by Vatican City or permission granted by them. One must be a highly regarded research scholar. So this is not for your run-of-the-mill history buff or even PhD student, but a world-renowned research scholar with a letter of recommendation from a very short list of approved institutions and specialty training in handling antique documents. All of these are required at minimum to get into the Vatican Apostolic Archives. Beyond that, the work of your research must be approved by Vatican City. In other words, if you're there to kind of upend the teachings of the church and do something that would cast a bad light on them, you're not getting permission to come into the Vatican Apostolic Archives, even if you're world-renowned scholar, letter of recommendation, and you have specialty training in handling antique documents. It is, in other words, the greatest privilege of a research scholar's career to be welcomed into the Vatican Apostolic Archives, a place of such secrets, uh, 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 secrets and highly guarded uh, items. It's considered one of the greatest honors to be invited there. <clears throat> so ask yourself a question. Does anything contained within the Vatican Apostolic Archives hold a candle to the glory and wonder of the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course not. Not a single thing. Not the most spectacular historical item or brilliant piece of literature or unique item that's held in that place comes close to even holding a candle. It would be like flicking a little tiny lighter and holding it up against the sun. And imagining that the light of that lighter is going to be the thing that blinds your eyes. How silly of an example. It would be immediately lost in the background of the blazing sun, wouldn't it? And Jesus, just to remind us what we said earlier, he made that sun by speaking. And he holds it in his hand. And all of those little, I'm not an astronomer, I have no idea what this stuff is, but all those little uh, solar flares and the little strands of energy when you see those close-up pictures of the sun that, that come off the sun, do you realize that some of those strands of energy that come off the sun would encircle our planet dozens of times? That's how big they are. 
93 million miles away, the sun is, that you could fit some 130,000 earths inside the sun. And Jesus made it all and upholds it all by the word of his power. And you and I have the privilege of looking unto him in this life and into all eternity. Of course, it's the greatest privilege of the Christian to look to Jesus. But if you grew up in the church and you have heard stories of your baptism as a young infant and you grew up in faithful biblical worship and you've read your Bible cover to cover and you've prayed the Lord's Prayer some 795 times over the course of your life and there's no systematic theology that doesn't rest on your shelf and no doctrinal dispute that you haven't worked out in your mind and no question of the larger catechism that you haven't memorized all the proof texts to, it can be easy to forget that simply Looking to Jesus is the greatest privilege of the Christian life. When you get to heaven, no one will ask you what question 164 of the larger catechism is. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter in this life. No one will ask you for your church attendance Excel spreadsheet or your Bible reading plan, your McShane reading plan. Make sure there's a little red X next to every day for the last 35 years. No one will ask you for those things. There's only one reason that we get to spend eternity in the presence of the living God, and that's the work of Christ our Savior and his righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. And we get to look to him. In our most difficult trials, in our most desperate need, we look unto Jesus. What a privilege to look for him for salvation For there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. What a privilege to look unto him for comfort. For he is the great physician, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God whose outstretched arm made the universe and all things. And by whose word they are all held together. Privilege to look to him for worship. For he alone is worthy of our praise. He hears our prayers. He knows our frame. And he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He bore our griefs in his body on the tree that we might die unto sin. And he took away God's wrath. What a privilege to worship us. And that great, is it, um, come Christians join to sing. That great hymn, come Christians join to sing. It tells us that praise is his gracious choice. It's his mercy and grace to us that we get to praise and worship him. The result of this ought to be a life full of gratitude and grateful worship. Thinking about the majesty of Jesus Christ and the privilege that is ours to look at him ought to incline our hearts Godward, incline our lives heavenward, that we might live lives of humble gratitude. We might say, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel with which we've been called. So do you live your life as if your adoption as his child and union with him is a great privilege? Or do you presume upon the reality of your salvation? Do you live as if it were not only undeserved, but that you actually deserve the total opposite of entrance into Christ's presence? God would be a just God to tell us to avert our eyes from Christ forever, to never cast a glance his way, to spend all of eternity staring into the utter darkness, unable to see our own hand move before our face. My family and I lived in Montana for about seven and a half years, and before you ask, it was okay. Um, It wasn't that great. 
very cold. You do realize, by the way, today is the last day of winter, so another great privilege. Um, <laughs> there was this cavern nearby where we lived. It was called Lewis and Clark Caverns. Lewis and Clark, obviously, in their great expedition, crossed through the Gallatin Valley, which is where Bozeman is. Uh, and outside of Bozeman, we lived near there, and there was this Lewis and Clark Caverns, and, and there were mine tunnels running all through this hillside. And they would take you down into the bowels of the earth in this... Uh, this uh, cavernous system, and then the, the National Park Service person would, they had a little foot uh, light switch that they would push with their toe. Remember how old, remember high beams in the old cars, you have to hit them with your toe, it was like one of those. And um, they would say, okay, everybody, now here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna turn, no cell phones out, don't grab your flashlights, my foot's on the button, but you're gonna experience real true darkness. And they would push the button. They'd say, okay, now everybody wave your hand in front of your face. And you would do this, and you would see the movement of your hand. And then they would inform you that that's your brain telling you that your hand is moving in front of your face. Because if somebody else were to put their hand in front of your face and move it, you wouldn't see a thing. But it's your brain and your hand talking together, telling your imaginary eyes that you can see this happening. It's so dark, there's no light whatsoever. Back in the early 1900s, a gentleman tried to go down into the caves in order to find precious jewels or whatever may have been down there, and he took a candle with him. I get claustrophobia just thinking about climbing down a rope ladder with a candle. In, but he did, and his candle went out, and it was Friday. And so he, realizing that if he made a wrong move, could fall into a crevice and be lost forever, stayed put. <clears throat> knowing that on Monday the workers would come back. Now, when they found this poor fellow, he was laying down, no, excuse me, he was sitting upright against a rock like this, and he thought he was lying down. He was never able to see color again because his eyes were so damaged by the darkness. I say all this as an illustration this is the most pleasant version of what eternity separated from God would be like. That's what we deserve, my friends. All of us, from me to the youngest child here to the sweetest elderly saint in this room, we all deserve that by nature. And it is a privilege that we are welcomed into the presence of God for all eternity, to look at Jesus as he is. Remember what Jesus said to Mary when she saw him in the garden after his resurrection? He said, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended. Do you know what Jesus is going to say to us when we get to heaven? Come here. Come to me. He's going to seat us down at his table, and he himself will serve us. What a privilege to look to Jesus. Looking unto Jesus is our highest privilege, and in him alone we find safety, both for this life and the next. Jude, uh, in verses 24 and 25, that great doxology uh, that Jude, the brother of Jesus, gives us, he says these words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be majesty and glory and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 
Jesus is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before his throne with great joy. What Jude is talking about here is the safety of our souls. We are kept in Christ. He alone preserves the believer into eternity. We're not kept by ourselves. We're kept by Christ. We, are not, we don't enter into covenant relationship with God by faith and then remain in it by obedience. Stand by. We are not welcomed into covenant relationship with God by faith and then keep ourselves in it by the law. Have you not read Galatians? We are welcomed into covenant fellowship with God by grace and are kept by grace in Christ and faith in Christ alone. And what God demands, he provides. And so not only is the faith by which we lay hold of Christ a gift from God, the ability to want to lay hold of Christ is itself a gift from God. And we're kept by him. Philippians 1, 6 tells us that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Left to ourselves, you and I would lose our fellowship with God. Uh, without showing hands, uh, perhaps like me, you struggle to get out of bed at the first alarm clock. And you need that snooze button. And one of the contributions to my laziness that my iPhone has made is that it's as easy as just pushing a little button. And then if I push the wrong little button, it shuts it off completely. And I can ignore it. And sometimes I accidentally do that in the morning. You and I who don't get out of bed when we're supposed to, who don't care for ourselves physically like we should, who knowing that certain foods are terrible for us, eat them anyway because we like them. How can we imagine that we would keep ourselves kept in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ of our own effort and power? Of course we would not. But we look to Jesus. He's the one who authored or founded and perfects or finishes our faith. He is our safety, which is why we look to him. Scripture tells us that God puts a new heart in us and a new spirit. Indeed, he is the spirit of Christ, the New Testament calls him. And it is his spirit that enables us to walk in his commandments and keep his statutes. The Heidelberg Catechism, which I understand that you're working through in your Sunday school hour, teaches us in the very first question that our only hope in life and death is that I belong body and soul, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism reflects on the duality of his saving work for us. It reflects on the body and soul, the now and not yet components of our salvation. His sovereignty not only guarantees us eternity in heaven, not only brings us safely home to him, but he preserves us in this life. Because as Heidelberg Catechism asks in question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? It teaches us that all things in this life, rain and drought and plenty and want and flower and nothing, and trials and tribulations happen not by chance but they come to us through his fatherly hand the hand out of which no one can snatch us Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 we are kept both in this life in the, and the next through Jesus Christ this is important as we face trials in this life we can't become Gnostic about material things and think that our real security is only eternal security our real safety in Christ is only eternal safety. It is that. It absolutely is that. But what do we do when we face trials and difficulties in this life? 
What do you do when your dearest loved one is given a diagnosis that you can't impact at all and neither can the doctors? What do you do when your covenant child, after 20 years of being raised in the church, leaves the faith when they go off to college or changes their orientation or gender at the surprise of everybody who knows them? Or when the person you thought loved you up and walks away and says, I want a divorce? Or when the job that you had for 25 years that you were counting on to aid you through your twilight years suddenly disappears? What do you do in those times? You don't simply remember the fact that one day I'm going to go to heaven. You remember that even now Jesus is active and working in keeping you. Satan asked for you, Peter, and I prayed for you that he might not have you now. He keeps us now in this life. He preserves us. And it's rightly been said that we are immortal until Christ calls us home. No matter what you're facing in this life, your safety today is still in Jesus. Look to him. Look to him. We look to Jesus when trials come because he alone is our true safety. He preserves us. Now the world record for holding breath, my record, is about a minute and a half when I was much younger and fitter. Croatian man named Budimir Savat held his breath for 24 minutes and 37 seconds. That's nuts, right? I can't, I don't know what, I would just be too bored to do that, even if I had the physical ability to do something like that. 24 and a half minutes holding his breath underwater. Budimir Savat, through countless hours of training, he taught his body to do this. But all the training and discipline in the world cannot make Budimir Savat's heart beat one more time. All the training and the discipline in the world cannot keep us in Christ. Budimir Savat has a better chance of holding his breath for a full week than you or I do of keeping ourselves secure in Christ. It does not reside within us in our natural state to do so. But scripture tells us that it is he who keeps us in him. He who secures us in himself. He is the author and finisher of our faith. In him, our names are hidden with Christ and God right now. Colossians tells us that we are presently seated with him in the heavenly places. How can it say that when I see that you're seated here with me? Because the reality of Christ's ownership of you and salvation of you, body and soul, is so sure that Paul can speak of your present state as being in heaven with Christ just like he can speak of your glorification in Romans 8 in past tense terminology. Because you are so secure in Christ that nothing, neither angels nor demons nor principalities or powers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor height nor depth, nor angels or demons or any other such thing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You are secure in him. Looking unto Jesus is the Christian's greatest safety. And finally, it's the greatest happiness of the believer. Newton calls it the unspeakable happiness of the Christian to look unto Jesus. And I want to keep this very simple by asking you a question. Think about this. Really think about this for a moment. Where is your joy? Where is your joy? That's not a question you can answer in 10 seconds. Where is your joy? And what do you find 
the greatest happiness. Is it in this life and the things of this world? Do you find the greatest joy in your marriage? In the success of your children or the loving comfort of your parents? The grades you get in school or your ability to read a book that you've never read before, young kids? Is your greatest joy in your bank account? Financial stability? Is your greatest joy in your favorite hobby? I love coming to church, but I really love fishing. I love coming to church, but I really love fill in the blank. Where's your joy? I can tell you where your joy is by tracing your time, your energy, your money, and your emotions. If you follow the trail of your time, what you commit the most of your life to, your money, what you spend the most of your extra money on, or your, all your money on, your energy, what sort of thing you devote your best hours to, and perhaps most importantly, your emotions, what thing makes you angry when you lose it or excited when you have it, I can tell you what your greatest joy is found in. We might rephrase that by saying, if you trace your time, your money, your energy, and your emotions, I can tell you what idol sits on the throne of your heart. Where's your joy? And what do you find the greatest joy? What's the thing that you worship the most? My friends, if it's in anything in this life, anything, it's a worthless thing. Our joy is to be found in Christ alone. Paul says that he considers joy in all trials and rejoices in the midst of them. How can he do that if his greatest joy is to be found in his own safety and security? Or friendship. James tells us to count it joy when we experience various trials. Because our joy should go beyond this life into the next one. To the faith that does not let us down as it increases our trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. One person said, the annals of happiness in this life are very brief. Scripture tells us that in Christ alone is pleasure forevermore. And at his right hand is the fullness of of joy. What did John the Baptist say in our scripture reading today? That he only looking across the river at Jesus completed his joy and now he must decrease so Christ can increase. The marriage illustration that scripture uses is very appropriate here, I think. Jesus is referred to as our heavenly spouse and we the church are his bride. What, what keeps a man from wandering from his wife is not simply the commitment and vows to faithfulness but the deep love and joy he has in her arms alone. The Proverbs reflect on this over and over again. Be fulfilled in the wife of your youth, it says. And so very simply, I ask you, where's your joy? Christ alone is the unspeakable joy and happiness of the believer. Stop seeking happiness in this world and its fleeting pleasures. All these things are going away, the Bible tells us. Stop living in and of this world, but consider your heavenly citizenship and he who resides there now, Christ our Savior. He's our great joy. He's our great happiness. Looking unto Jesus is the duty, the privilege, the safety, and the unspeakable happiness of the believer. He's the example of our faith, the object of our faith, and the source of our faith. To whom else could we possibly look? Or as the disciple said, where else could we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. Let me close with a quote from John Owen. He says that a constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now, the more spiritual and the more heavenly will be the state of our souls. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory by looking unto Jesus, these other things will be expelled. As Thomas Chalmers called it, the expulsive power of a new and greater affection. This is how spiritual life is revived, by looking unto Jesus. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your son. It's our duty to look unto him. In him alone may we find salvation. It's our privilege to look unto him. We don't deserve it, Lord, and we know it. It is our safety to look unto him because he alone keeps us in this life and into eternity. Lord, would you cause it to be our greatest happiness to look unto Jesus, to not look into ourselves, not look out at the world, but look up to Christ as the only one worth worshiping and adoring from now into eternity. In whose name we pray, amen.